John chapter 15. I'm surprised we only have two here that were in the military. I'm three, yeah, Walter. Well, you were in the Air Force. I said military. <laughs> we appreciate it. We appreciate the... Good, good thinking. <laughs> well, we appreciate all those that have put on the uniform. John chapter 15. John 15. We all there? Go ahead, let's pray. Father, we, again, are a very grateful people. We are grateful for what our forefathers in this country were willing to do. We're thankful for all of those that have put on the uniform. We are thankful for those that were willing to pay the ultimate price for a country to have freedom. And I'm not thanking you for freedom to go out and get drunk or freedom to uh, do anything like that. I'm talking about freedom of religion. Thank you so much, Father, that we have that freedom. We appreciate it. We don't take it lightly that we can walk in this building freely, that I can stand behind this pulpit and preach the Word of God freely, that any whosoever will may come in and listen to the Word of God freely and they can assemble together without any, any fear because of what men and women did in the past. Thank you for that. Father, we pray this morning that you would speak to us. Today is a day of remembrance. Pray, Lord, that we might remember some of the things that we need to remember. Pray that you'd take this piece of dirt standing behind the pulpit and me and my flesh dwells no good thing. You know that, I know that. Without you, I can't do anything. So, Lord, I pray that you would take this piece of dirt and fill it with your spirit and your power and your passion and your words and your wisdom and please minister to us this morning from the pulpit to the pew spirit of God this is your time this is your service father we are your children at your feet please minister to us this morning we pray in Christ's name amen John chapter 15, we'll start reading at verse 9, a very familiar text. Jesus is giving this at what we would refer to as a period after the Last Supper, before they enter into Gethsemane. He's already done the uh, gathering together at the house. They've had the Passover meal. He's done the foot washing. And then he gives them some uh, advice, uh, some encouragement that, seemed to be a discouragement at some point in chapters 14, 15, and 16. He references the Holy Spirit of God, the Comforter coming. In John 15 and verse 9, he says this, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. 
Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you my friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. And whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that you love one another. And if you look back at verse 13, he said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. This is a day to remember. This is the day that has been referred to as Memorial Day. And every president that we've had after the Civil War has gone to a place just outside of the city of Washington, D.C., called Arlington Cemetery. And Arlington wasn't always a cemetery. It was an estate. George Washington's adopted grandson, George Washington Park Custis, decided he would make a living memorial to the first president. Custis's daughter, Mary, married U.S. Army First Lieutenant Robert E. Lee in 1831. When he died, Custis left the estate to his daughter, Mary Custis Lee, for the duration of her life, and upon her death, her eldest son would inherit the property. Robert E. Lee served as the executor of his father-in-law's will and never owned the property. And after the Lees abandoned the property at the start of the Civil War, the U.S. Army seized Arlington Estate on May 24, 1861. They didn't seize it because they had animosity against the Lees or the Custises. They seized it because it was a very strategic location. Uh, I've never been there, but upon reading the accounts, there is a, there is a height it's, a, it's higher than Washington, D.C. And every federal building in Washington, D.C. Uh, can be fired upon uh, with artillery from that height. So it's a very strategic move for the military to take that property and use it uh, for their own defense. On May 13th of 1864, the first military burial was conducted for Private William Chrisman. Brigadier General Montgomery Meigs, the quartermaster general of the U.S. Army, who was responsible for the burying of soldiers, ordered Arlington Estate to be used as a cemetery. And so from that point on, 400, over 400,000 soldiers are buried there. Uh, they say they bury about 25 a day. And presidents visit on Memorial Day, and they lay a wreath at the what's known as the Tomb of the Unknowns. And we would say the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. The Tomb of the Unknowns is guarded 24-7 by the best, the most qualified members of the 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment, also known as the Old Guard, and that's where that term comes from. They talk about the Old Guard. Well, the Old Guard technically was formed in 1784, and it's the oldest active duty infantry unit in the Army. And on the back of that tomb, there is an inscription that reads here, rests in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. Uh, many of our troops uh, uh, never came home and uh, classified as missing in action. And uh, many a wife, many a parent has no closure concerning the loss of that loved one. And this tomb is there for their sake, for the unknown soldier. I've talked to you before about Memorial Day and I've told you the history of it. I'll 
touch on it again briefly. At May 5, 1868, Major General John A. Logan of the Grand Army of the Republic, which is an organization made up of Union veterans, set aside May 30th as Decoration Day. And that's what my parents always called it. They always referred to it as Decoration Day. And it's, it's called that because the tombs, the graves are decorated on that day, either with flowers or with a flag. General Logan's order declared we should guard their graves with sacred vigilance, let pleasant paths invite the coming and going of reverent visitors and fond mourners, that no neglect, no ravages of time testify to the present or to the coming generations that we have forgotten as a people the cost of a free and undivided republic. That's a great statement. And that's the reason why there is a Memorial Day and that's the reason why flags are planted and flowers are, are laid and wreaths are laid at the un Tomb of the Unknown is because we never want to forget what went on, what this is all about. And the sad thing is I think that we have a generation that's coming up that uh, uh, has no idea, has no idea. And unless they have a loved one or a relative that has been in Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, they really have no idea. And I mentioned last week when we talk about communism, they have no idea of Vietnam and they have no idea of Pol Pot in Cambodia or Mao in China or uh, Lenin and Stalin and what have you in uh, Russia. Uh, no, no idea of the evils of communism. This is a day where to remember, we're to remember what people did and what the price was paid that you and I can sit here this morning. At that first Memorial Day, 5,000 gathered at Arlington National Cemetery to attend commemoration ceremonies. Uh, Mr. and Mrs., I should say General and Mrs. U Ulysses S. Grant were there present. This was the first major tribute of the nation to those who fell in the Civil War. And again, at that time, small American flags were placed at each grave, which is tradition that continues today. However, the decorations of graves actually began before General Logan's official order. There were quite a few uh, Memorial Day observances around the country, primarily in the South, where most of the casualties of the Civil War were buried. Many great quotes came from this holiday. There's an unknown quote, nobody knows who said this, but the quote is, we must never forget that freedom is not free. And that is a, it's an incredible statement. Freedom isn't free. There's another one that I've told you about. I, I believe that it was made by the son of a pastor in uh, Inverness, Florida, or near Inverness, Florida, uh, who had been in the military. And I asked him, I said, um, did you come up with that? And he said, you know, I've read a lot of stuff. And he said, I've never seen this quote. He had a bumper sticker made out of it. That's why I was so curious about it. And uh, he said, I think I'm the one that came up with a statement. And the statement is this, only two defining forces ever offered to die for you, Jesus Christ and the American soldier. One died for your soul, the other died for your freedom. I've never seen that anywhere else. He may be the one that, that came up with that. It's an incredible statement. If I were going to add anything to that, I would add a third one, and that being the uh, first responders. But it's a great statement. We also see bumper stickers, uh, all gave some, some gave all. That's a great statement. Some have published the what's referred to as the warrior's ethos, ethos uh, meaning the warrior's spirit. And this came 
This was not an American invention. Uh, came from out of the modern Western world uh, from the embodiment of Achilles, the hero of the Trojan War in Homer's Iliad. In America, the warrior ethos evolved into a covenant that binds warriors to one another and to the citizens in whose name they fight and serve. And four simple points. Uh, point number one, I'll always place the mission first. Number two, I will never accept defeat. Number three, I will never quit. Number four, I will never leave a fallen comrade. And you know, there's a four-point sermon there for you guys that preach. Uh, I will never place the mission first, or oh, I will always place the mission first. We've, we've said this, that circumstances do not define the mission. The mission defines the circumstance. I'll never accept defeat. Romans 8, verse 37 says, We're more than conquerors of him that loved us. I'll never quit. Paul said in Galatians, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. I'll never leave a fallen comrade. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one. So that could be a Christian warrior's ethos, if, if, if you'd like. And let me say this, Memorial Day is not unique to the United States. There are other countries that have Memorial Day. Russia has theirs on May 9th, which recognizes their victory over Nazi Germany. Israel has one called Yam Hazikaran, May 11th, depending which day it falls on which was for the victims of terror. Australia and New Zealand have one on April 25th, which is, commemorates their first action in World War I. The Netherlands on May 4th has Daden Hurdenking, which is a remembrance of the war dead in World War II. United Kingdom recognizes November 11th, which would co coincide with Veterans Day, celebrating the end of World War I. Germany has Volkssturigtag, which is the Sunday closest, November 16th, honoring the dead. But I would say this. I, I believe in my heart that America's Memorial Day is different than all the other nations, and I believe our Memorial Day probably inspired some of these other nations to have the same thing. But I believe America's Memorial, Memorial Day is different. It's a day to remember. We remember the sacrifices made by, in the different American wars. In the Revolutionary War, 400. 4,435 men died. Eight, War of 1812, 2,260. What they call the Indian Wars, over 1,000. The Mexican War, 13,283. The Civil War, 498,332 uh, young men gave their lives. Spanish-American War, 2,446. World War I, 116,516 died. And more than half of those died as a result of disease. World War II, 405,399. Korea, 54,246. Vietnam, 90,220. Persian Gulf War, 1,565. Afghanistan, 2,455. The Global War on Terror, 6,852. The deadliest civil war battle was in... Gettysburg. We used to do a vacation Bible school every year in a little city called Red Lion, Pennsylvania, which is south of York, which is south of Harrisburg, the capital. And we did it Monday through Thursday, so we had Friday off. And so we tried to do something special on Friday. One Friday, we went into Washington, D.C. One Friday, we decided we're going to visit 
Gettysburg, or as the locals say, Gettysburg, and uh, visited the battlefield. And it was the day when they still had the tower. They've torn it down since, but there was a big tower. You could go up in that tower, and from that tower you could see all the different battle locations in that area. We bought, and this is how long ago it was, we bought a cassette tape that you put in the, the vehicle, and it gave you the guided tour. So you simply followed along with the cassette tape, and you'd get to a location. They'd tell you to stop, and they'd tell you the history of that, and then they'd take you to the next one. And I remember getting to a place that is referred to as Pickett's Charge. And Pickett's Charge was a location that the Union had uh, fortified at the highest point of the area. And the Confederates had to charge up the hill to take out the Union soldiers. And it took three days. The first day, the Confederates charged up there and they were massacred. They regrouped. And they tried it again on the second day when they charged up that hill and they were massacred. Pickett said, we can do it. One more day. And that third day, again, they regrouped and charged up that hill and were massacred for the third time. And that's where most of the loss came in the Battle of Gettysburg. 7,000 dead, 50,000 casualties. The deadliest battle of all was the Battle of the Argonne, Argonne Forest, World War I, 26,277 dead, 192,000 casualties. Suffice it to say, a lot of blood has been shed so that you and I can sit here today and enjoy the freedom that we have. And you ought to thank the Lord. Every time you walk in those doors, you ought to thank the Lord that you can walk in those doors. And as we sit here, you ought to thank the Lord, whether good or bad, that you can sit and listen to some guy preach to you and preach to you the Word of God and be thankful that we can assemble together without the fear at this point of having somebody come in and destroy this property and arrest us, as is going on in other parts of the world today. One of the amazing things about the formation of our country is that over and over and over again, you can see God's invisible hand involved. I think about the arrival of the pilgrims, which are primarily Puritans. Uh, Google will call them radical Puritans. Radical because they believe the Bible and love Jesus Christ. I'm a radical. I'll sign up. And understand this, that these pilgrims came because they were fleeing religious persecution. They couldn't, our way of worshiping was illegal. Illegal in Europe, illegal in England. They went to Holland where they had a little bit of freedom there, but they didn't like to, the results of what was happening to their children by the culture. And so fleeing all that, they wanted to come someplace where they could have or establish religious freedom. But they were fleeing persecution. I had a, heard a fellow say the other day that uh, they, would, they were visiting England and uh, driving around the countryside and they saw this, this little church, a little museum kind of a church thing way out in the, way out in the country. And so they stopped there and they stopped to see uh, what this was all about. And so they went in and they talked to the caretaker. The caretaker was there and he began to explain a little bit about the church. It was a Baptist church. And 
the question came up that what, what's, what's going on with this church here? What was this all about? And so the caretaker began to tell them that that church was built exactly where three shires or counties meet. And the thing was this, that it was illegal for 10 or more, I believe it's 10 or more of them, to gather at any one time. And yet they wanted to have their church. So they would meet, word would get back to the city, and the authorities would come out. And depending what county they came from, the people would simply step over to this side of the church to get out of that county. Or if it was that county, they would step back here and get in this county. And so that way they were able to stay out of the jurisdiction of whatever the authorities were that came. So Baptists do have some ability to be ingenious at times. Um, then the question was, why, why is it so far from the city? And it was so far from the city because the crown had determined that any non-Anglican church, the Anglican church was the state church, and any non-Anglican church could not meet within five miles of a city. So here's this church way out there where three counties meet, doing all that so they could worship Jesus Christ. And I, I just, I, I am... Um, I am, I'm not going to dwell on this, but I think of all the excuses we make for not being in church. And yet here are these Baptists in threat of persecution finding a way to get to church. And they didn't have as good as preachers you do. Anyway, so the prevailing desire of the pilgrims was religious freedom. Now there was another group 13 years earlier that went to, to Jamestown uh, I believe that's Virginia. And they were going to try to establish a colony down there. And I, we've talked a little bit about Jamestown before. The people who went to Jamestown were the aristocrats, the uh, upper echelon, if you will. And their goal of going to Jamestown was because somehow they heard that all these Indians had silver and they had gold and what have you. So they were going to go and they were going to, they were going to you know, uh, take everything that the Indians had and get rich with gold and silver and what have you. And they had so many failures in Jamestown, it was incredible. But let me tell you this, the pilgrims didn't come here to pillage the wealth of the Native Americans. They came to have religious freedom. They had seen what it was like to live in countries where there was a state church. And so you notice your First Amendment has the Establishment Clause. And the state is not to, establish, to have any established state religion. The pilgrims came... And uh, it was in November when they approached Plymouth and they had sailed around various places. I believe the first place they stopped was Providence Town, or Providence Town, however you say it. But they, they, they were checking out where they could go. Uh, some of them had this idea that let's go south. It's, look how cold it is here. I know if we go south, it's going to be warmer. Jamestown was to the south. He said, let's, let's, go, to, let's go to the south. And so... They got together and they decided, all right, let's, let's head down to the south. And as they began to make the trip to the south, the wind kicked up. The wind kicked up, a storm kicked up, and turned them back to where God wanted them to be. Take your Bible and turn to Psalm 68. I'm going to show you something. Talk about the invisible hand of God. Turn to Psalm 68 and Job 38. Psalm 68 and Job 38. Interesting statements about God. 
In Psalm 68, starting at verse 33, speaking again about God, he says, To him that rideth upon the heavens of the heavens, which were of old, lo, he doth send out his voice, that is a mighty voice, ascribe ye strength unto God, his excellency is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. His strength is in the clouds. Go to Job 38. Job 38, look down at verse 28. God speaking to Job, and he said this, Hath the rain a father? Or who hath begotten the drops of dew? You know what the Lord just told us there? He said, I control the weather. I control the weather. And you can make all the plans you want, he said, but I control the weather. The pilgrims plan, they're going to head south, which in my opinion was the way to go. They were going to head south. And God began to move in the clouds. And God began to stir up the wind and push them back to where he wanted them to be. There's an old hymn. I've never heard it. It's called The God of the Sparrow and the God of the Whale. The second stanza says this. He's the God of the earthquake and the God of the storm. God of the trumpet blast. So the invisible hand of God drives the storms and push the pilgrims back where they needed to be. But that's not all. And I don't have time to give you all the instances of the founding of our country. But George Washington, a great general, on more than one occasion experienced the invisible hand of God. He was in the battle of what's known as Brooklyn Heights. He was surrounded on all sides, and at his back was the East River. Washington decided he needed to move his army or they were done. And he couldn't figure out how to move it. He he said all all they saw were these rowboats, a bunch of rowboats around. And he thought, I'm going to put all of our troops in these rowboats and we're going to head across the East River to get away. And his leaders, his other warriors with him said, if we get in those boats, these British frigates out here, they're going to see us and we're done. Washington said, we don't have any other choice. So as the night came on, they began to get in the rowboats. And the God of the clouds decided to bring a fog in and covered Washington's troops. And nobody saw them leave. And when the morning came, the British were saying, where are they? God has a way of doing things like that. The second battle of Trenton in January was a Another difficult time, and Washington, I believe, only had one cannon at the time, and he's trying to move that cannon and trying to get in position, and they're outnumbered again, and it was one of those weird times in January where there was a thaw, and in that area, when there's a thaw, there's mud, and so that cannon sunk in the mud, and they had no idea what they're going to do, and amazingly enough, the God of the clouds sent a northern wind. In Toledo, they used to call them the Alberta Clippers. They would come in out of Canada and just very, very cold air. And they could freeze something like that. I don't know where this wind came from other than God. But it blew upon the mud and froze the mud so they could easily move the cannon and escape once again. In Yorktown, at the end of the war, 
they've got Cornwallis trapped. And he has, I believe it's the York River behind him. And he's thinking, how do I get away? And then he began to think, Washington, just a while back, put all of his troops in rowboats, and they, they got away. So Cornwallis said, let's do the same thing. They put all his troops in these boats, and they began to move away from Yorktown, and the god of the clouds decided to blow a wind. This time it wasn't a fog, it was a storm. And pushed those little boats back to shore, tipped a lot of them over, busted them up so bad that the next day Cornwallis, with a white flag on his bayonet, said, we're done. And I think even he knew the God of the Clouds had finished this thing. Washington said in a private letter to Brigadier General Thomas Nelson, August 20th, 1778, he said this, he said, It's not a little pleasing, nor less wonderful to contemplate that after two years maneuvering and undergoing the strangest, and he uses the word vicissitudes, which means a change of circumstance or fortune, that perhaps ever attended in any one contest since the creation, both armies are brought back to the very point they set out from and that which was the offending party in the beginning is now reduced to the use of the spade and the pickaxe for defense. Talking about Cornwallis and the surrender. Then he said this, the hand of providence has been so conspicuous in all of this that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith and more than wicked that is not gratitude enough to acknowledge his obligations. And he's talking about obligations to God. Washington said, I've seen God do so many different things that only God could do that brought about the formation of this country. So here we are in 2022. And tomorrow we will do whatever we do on Memorial Day. For some, it's a time of uh, cooking out, a time of playing whatever you play, volleyball or maybe football, maybe some baseball, or just sitting around and talking uh, with each other, watching the young people play football or baseball or whatever they're playing. But understand this, whatever you do tomorrow, there's a mob somewhere that's not going to be setting that extra plate at the table. There's a wife somewhere that'll have a vacant chair at her table. And they'll be somewhere shedding a tear for a loved one that they've lost. Tomorrow, while we're having fun and enjoying ourselves, there's a son or a daughter somewhere that only know their dad or their mom by a picture sitting on a table or a dresser. We'll play, we'll laugh, we'll eat, and we'll eat and we'll eat. But for some, there'll be one less steak on the grill, one less hamburger to broil. And there is a responsibility we owe to those who've paid the ultimate price. I was never in the military. Mr. Nixon ended the draft. The last draft call was December of 1972. The authority to induct expired on June 30th, 1973. I turned 18, 1974. 
I was never in the military. I had three uncles that were in the military. Two were in the European theater. One was in the Pacific theater. I had a cousin. Oldest cousin was in Vietnam. But I had never been in the military. And I look back now and I kind of feel a, I don't know how to say it, a certain part of my life uh, seems to be missing something. I believe it's the idea that I love my country. But I never paid the debt I owe to those who did serve. I highly respect those that have put on the uniform. I highly respect those that have raised the right arm, if you will. But I've never experienced that. And again, to this day, I feel something missing somewhere. We have a, we have a responsibility. We have an obligation to our country. And at the very least, we have the obligation of being thankful for what we have. And if you're not thankful for your country, if you don't like America, I'll make you a deal. Gospel Light Baptist Church will buy you a one-way ticket to the country of your choice. We will drive you to Sky Harbor and we will let you out at the door. We'll take your suitcase out of the back of our car. And the last thing we'll say to you is good riddance. We have an obligation of being thankful for our country. You know, I've heard so much about America being such a bad place and white, white supremacists, you know, had put together the Constitution. They don't even know who they are. The country was founded by a bunch of old white guys. They weren't old white guys when they founded it. And you have no idea what they went through. All, you, all people can do nowadays is mimic the nonsense that they read on the computer screen. That's all they can do. Research, have no idea what that is. History, what is that? Listen, if America is such a bad country, why are people doing everything they can to get here? You saw the aircraft going down the runway in Afghanistan. You saw the Afghans running after, trying to jump into uh, the wheel wells before the plane took off, dying in the process. Why would they do that if America was such a bad place to go? I remember as a child watching the evacuation of Saigon, seeing Vietnamese trying to hang from the bottom of the helicopter, and they could only hang on for so long. Many of them Vietnamese got in rowboats, and they were going to cross the Pacific in a rowboat to get to America. And many of them died. Many of them were picked up by ships and brought to this country. And now the Vietnamese are an active part of our community. Hard-working people. I remember seeing in 1980 the Mariel boat lift. 125,000 Cubans fleeing Fidel Castro's communism to come to the United States. As much as I'm opposed to what's going on at our southern border, listen, they're not fleeing to South America. Why aren't they deciding to run to South America? They're coming to North America. They're coming to the United States. They're not even satisfied with staying in Mexico. They want to come to the United States. Doesn't sound like a bad country to me. People don't do what they're doing to come to a bad country. 
I believe America is the greatest nation on this earth. And I've mentioned before when we flew in from somewhere, either Greece or what have you, going through O'Hare Airport, and you go through passport control and customs and all that. And I remember saying to one guy behind the counter, uh, he took my passport, he said, welcome home. I said, uh, I said, I am so glad to be back in America. He said, that's what they all say. We've got the greatest country on the face of the earth. Does it, does it have problems? It certainly does. Anything human beings are involved in, you're going to have problems. But I believe the Constitution is one of the greatest pieces of literature ever published by a politician. So as an American citizen, we owe a debt to our country. You know, a couple days after Pearl Harbor was bombed on December 7, 1941, there was a massive swell of enlistments. In fact, they began to realize after a while, we can't take everybody in. There'll be nobody to work in the factories, and we need people to work in the factories to rebuild the boats that the Japanese just sunk and to build the aircraft and what have you. So they end up turning a lot of people away. But it has been reported that in some locations, the line was over a mile long to enlist because there were a bunch of young American men that thought they owed their country a debt to defend their country. We have a debt. We have a responsibility. I've told you before that we were street preaching one time in Toledo. It was the Thanksgiving Christmas parade. Toledo's so cheap that they have to combine two holidays to make one parade. And we were down there preaching at the uh, Thanksgiving Christmas parade. And I offended some lady, which seems to be my, <laughs> seems to be my gift. Uh, one lady was so upset and she came over to me and vehemently said, What gives you the right to stand here and do this? And I looked at her and I said, ma'am, I had three uncles in World War II, two in Europe that saw action, one in the Pacific that saw action, had an older cousin in Vietnam. And then I said this, if they were willing to die or put themselves in harm's way for the rights of the American people, that by the grace of God, I am going to exercise those rights that they fought and men fought and died for. And that's our responsibility. What a waste for men to fight for religious freedom and we don't use it. What a waste for men to fight for uh, the freedom of speech and we keep our mouths shut. What a waste. What a waste. We have a responsibility to what was done, what men gave and women gave. We have a responsibility to do what they gave us the right to do. But let me say this. There is something far greater than being an American. I believe this is the greatest country in the world. I believe politically speaking, socially speaking, the greatest thing in the world is to be an American. But there's something far greater than being an American, and that's being a Christian. Let me say that again. There's something far greater than being an American, 
and that's being a Christian. And I think we've got, we've got the two greatest things, we do, the two greatest things in this world, to be an American and to be a Christian. But let me say this, my Christianity supersedes by being an American. It always will. And as Christians, we have an obligation to Jesus Christ. You know, the greatest memorial is not the rock in Plymouth. It's not the museum in Yorktown. It's not the mission building in the Alamo. It's not the battleground at Gettysburg. It's not the graves in Normandy. It's not ground zero in New York City or whatever will be next. But the greatest memorial was a small hill just outside of Jerusalem. It's called the Place of the Skull. It's called in Aramaic Golgotha. It's called in Latin Calvary. And it's the greatest memorial because on that small hill, Jesus Christ hung upon a cross. And there, paid for the sins, not just of Americans, but paid for the sins of everyone in the entire world, past, present, and future. That's the greatest memorial that there ever will be. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11. Very familiar text. First Corinthians chapter 11 has to do with the Lord's Supper. We celebrated that about a month ago on a Sunday night. And Paul explains to the church at Corinth, because they'd messed it up. They turned the time of taking the Lord's Supper into a church fellowship. Nothing wrong with a church fellowship, but they were doing it really in a bad way. There were people that had a lot of food coming in. There were people that didn't have much food. And the people with a lot of food said, keep your hands off my food. And it got to be an ugly thing. So Paul said, you know what? He said, here's what you need to do. If you're going to eat a lot and eat a dinner, what have you, do it in your own house. But when you come here for the Lord's Supper, he said, let me remind you what this is all about. And so he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 23, he said this. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. The memorial day for the Christian is every time we think about his body being broken for us. And I've gone over the crucifixion. I'm not going to do it again. But you know the story. That if anything could be done to break a body, it was his body that had been broken. Broken by the whip, the cat of nine tails. Broken by the nails. Broken by the spear. Broken by the crown of thorns. You name it. But he said, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Then he went on. Verse 25, after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. So he poured the grape juice, the fruit of the vine, it's called. And he takes that and he says, This cup filled with this grape juice represents my blood. My blood which is shed for the sins of many. I hope you understand this morning that nothing can wash away your sin except the blood of Jesus Christ. 
What can wash away my sin? The song goes, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. And he said, this is the blood of the New Testament. This do in remembrance of me. So the memorial for the believer is the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary. And the subsequent events that followed, which is the resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the Father, and his promise of return someday. Paul goes on to say this in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Our memorial has to do with an event in the past where what was needed to take away the sins of the world was accomplished. And now this resurrected Savior says, and don't forget the future, I'm coming back again. That's our memorial. So I understand the providential hand of God in the formation of our nation. I have told you time and again different events that have taken place that only God could have done. And I'm glad as an American I am free. I have liberty. I don't have license, but I have liberty. And I'm grateful for the liberty that God has given I am very, very thankful for all of those who raised their right hands and swore to uphold the Constitution of the United States. And I'm saddened. I'm saddened to think of those that gave their lives in combat who will never see heaven. Now what I just said is usually never said on a Memorial Day. And I've heard a lot of stuff about Memorial Day and I've heard the, the different songs that have sung about the soldiers that have died and all that. But the fact of the matter is that when a soldier dies without Jesus Christ, it's no different than anybody else dying without Jesus Christ. And I very, 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 very much appreciate their act of bravery and their sacrifice for this nation and for the people of this nation but they don't get a ticket to heaven because they died in combat. I remember as a child, I, I, didn't, I wasn't raised in a religious home. I was raised in a blue-collar, hard-drinking family. My dad worked uh, uh, all his life as a machinist and uh, did different jobs uh, when, he, when that company moved to Houston and then he was working uh, in another machine shop making molds for glass. Toledo was one time the glass capital of the world. And they would make the, the molds, you know, on the lathe and what have you, that they poured the molten glass in that formed the, the jar, the cup, or whatever. And um, he was hard working. Six o'clock every morning at work, come home at three o'clock. My mom left to work at 7.30 every morning, worked as a receptionist, uh, got off work at five, got home at 5.30. My family would have never imagined life without alcohol. My granddad was a bootlegger. I had never at one time heard any of them suggest, you know, you need to quit drinking. Oh, we'd try to talk my dad into quit smoking. But that thought never occurred to, to, to quit the alcohol, to quit drinking. That was my family, blue collar. Blue collar, you work, 
We weren't entrepreneurs. We weren't, uh, uh, you know, business starters or anything like that. The idea, you go to the job, you clock in, you do your work, you clock out, you come back and you do it the next day. And you do it whether you feel sick or not. I mean, that was a day that, you know, you can puke at work just like you can at home. We need you here at work. What a day, huh? That's the kind of family I came And I remember, we had, I mean, my parents were not religious. Uh, they were Holiday Inn Christians, you know. They'd go to church on Christmas and Easter. That was it. They made sure I went to catechism and confirmation at the Lutheran Church and all that, which I didn't want to go to. But after that, they didn't care if I went to church or not. But I remember on one occasion, it was a, Afternoon, we were sitting there watching the big show, 4.30 every afternoon, the big show. And it was a military, it was, a, it was an army movie. Somebody was, John Wayne was killing somebody on some island somewhere. It was a great movie. And I remember at one time turning around and saying to my dad, do people that die in combat get to go to heaven? And he contemplated that thought a little bit and he said yes. Because he didn't know. But we know. We have a Bible. And only through the blood of Jesus Christ and only by faith in his death, burial, and resurrection is a person allowed to go to heaven. So I'm very, very saddened of everyone in the military that gave their lives for the country and ended up in a devil's hell. I'm saddened for the guy that jumped on the grenade threw his body on a live grenade to save his buddies and found himself in hell. I'm saddened. But that's the fact. I'm just bringing a little reality into what this holiday is. But I'm thankful. I'm going to give you one more verse and we'll be done. Romans chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. But as a Christian, as Christians, we have a debt. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 14, he said, I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. What do you owe, Paul? Verse 15, so as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Paul said, I owe a debt. And that debt is, I owe you the gospel. I owe you the gospel. Every time you pass a track out, you're paying some of that debt. Every time you open your mouth and try to witness, you're paying that debt. Every time you hang a bag on a door in this community, you're paying back the debt. Every time you come on visitation, and we had, what, two, four people yesterday to knock on doors? Four people that said, I'm working on my debt. We live in a society nowadays where people don't even care about their debts. I'll just file bankruptcy and start over again. Paul said, we're debtors. We're debtors. So we have an obligation. And let me ask you two questions and we'll be done. And don't answer me, please. But question number one is, are you meeting your obligations as an American? Are you meeting your obligations as an American? There are some of you in here that never voted in the last election. Never voted 
in the last election. Say, so what difference does it make? It better make a difference. And I am so grateful that states are taking it upon themselves to make sure that the voting in their state will be accurate and it will be counted like it's supposed to. Let me remind you, it was Lenin that said this, it doesn't matter who votes, it matters who counts the votes. That's the last election. I'm not going any farther with that. How are you doing on paying your debt as an American? Praying for your country? Say, preacher, I'd love to get together with some people and just pray for our country. We meet here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock. Preacher, I think we need to pray more for our president. We meet on Sunday morning, every Sunday morning at 8.30, right? Yes, 8.30. The three of us, or the four of us. And it's not closed. Anybody can come. The men meet on Saturday night. Any man can come. How are you doing as an American? How are you doing paying your debt to the, your country? Let me ask you a second question. How are you doing paying your debt as a Christian? How are you doing paying your debt as a Christian? Getting the gospel out? We have that track rack on the wall there. You empty it, I'll fill it. It's not there for decoration. It's not, oh, look how beautiful that looks. That's not why it's there. It's there for you to take them and pass them out. You, you empty it, I'll fill it. How are you doing as your obligations as a Christian? Good questions, huh? Memorial Day is a day of remembrance. And I remember and I'm thankful for what soldiers did for my freedom. I'm thankful for what the God of this universe did for my freedom 2,000 years ago when he hung on the cross, rose again from the dead. I owe a debt to both of those. We owe a debt. How are you doing with that? Father, we thank you, Lord, for what this day represents. It is so sad, Father, when we think about those brave men that died and ended up in hell. And I wish dying in battle was a free ticket. It'd be so easy to preach that this morning. But I pray, Father, for the country, that the people in this country will educate themselves or get educated about what this thing is all about. There are young people in this country that are so absolutely stupid. And I pray, Father, that as Christians we will meet our obligations and we'll pay that debt that we owe. I also pray, Father, if there's anybody here that's never trusted Christ as their Savior. What a waste to die without Christ. He's paid the debt 2,000 years ago, shed his blood, rose from the dead. And what a waste would it be for a man or woman to just turn their back on that and end up in hell.
Thank you, Father, for being our God. With heads bowed, with eyes closed, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, we're going to give what's called an invitation. The invitation is when people are standing up and singing. And when people are standing up and singing, you simply get out of the seat that you are in. You walk down one of these aisles to the front. Somebody will meet you here at the front, take a Bible, probably take it to my office and take about 10, maybe 15 minutes of your time and show you how to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's really easy to become a Christian. You simply recognize the fact that you're a sinner. Be willing to turn from that. That's called repentance. And then trust in Him who died for you 2,000 years ago and rose again from the dead and is alive today. But it's got to be your choice. So as we give the invitation, if you've never trusted Christ, we ask you simply to come forward. Somebody will meet you up here. Christian, the altar is open. You do as God would lead you to do. But you have a debt. You may sit out there and think, Preacher, all my bills are paid and my credit cards are all paid. I'm, I'm out of debt. You're never out of debt as a Christian. You owe this world the gospel. And some of you haven't paid on that bill in a long time. Altar's open. Maybe you need to talk to the Lord about it. Brother Walter, come ahead. Turn your hymnals to 159, Jesus, I Come. Number 159. 